Good morning and welcome. Thank you so much for coming. I am Caroline Wadhams, a National Security Policy Analyst here at the Center for American Progress, and I want to welcome you to today's release of our new report on Pakistan entitled A Partnership for Progress, Advancing a New Strategy for Prosperity and Stability in Pakistan and the Region. We are honored to have three great panelists with us here today, uh, Jonah Blank, Steve Cole, and Robert Grenier. And Larry Korb, uh, a senior fellow here at the Center, will introduce them shortly and moderate the panel. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, the substance of the report and also thank uh, a number of people who were uh, crucial in, in making, um, in helping us uh, put this report together. This, pro this report is the product of a year-long study that we began back in September 2007. And um, I want to first and foremost acknowledge the other principal authors of this report, including uh, senior fellows Brian Kutulis, who's sitting in the front, front row, and Larry Korb, and our national security uh, special assistant Colin Cookman, who's also in the front row. I want to give special uh, a special thanks to Colin, who has been instrumental in getting this report done. He has a combination of skills that will guarantee his success in this field. He's an excellent writer and researcher, a hard worker, and he has a passion for these issues. And we could not have done this without him. So thank you, Colin. I also want to say thanks to Brian, who is the author of the recently released book, Prosperity Agenda. If it's not already there, you should get a copy for your nightstand. Brian traveled to Pakistan three times this past year, interviewing individuals from all facets of pa Pakistani society. And he and I observed the parliamentary elections in February. Anyone who's worked with Brian knows just how good he is in this field, his keen intellect writing and editing were invaluable to the report's recommendations and the thrust of the report. And of course, thanks go to Larry Korb, who really needs no introduction after so many contributions to U.S. national security thinking over the past many, many years. He supported the entire effort immensely and kept us moving forward. Thanks, Larry. This report was informed by a working group of Pakistan and regional experts who have decades of collective experience grappling with all aspects of US the U.S.-Pakistan relationship. And they're listed in the front of our report. In addition to our three panelists who are all working group members, there are a number of people in the audience who I want to thank for being part of that group. Um, we have Alex Thier. Rick Inderfirth, Jim Moody, Marvin Weinbaum, Tukair Hussein, Josh White, and if I, maybe there might be a few others out there that I haven't seen, but thank you very much for your generosity. We believe that Pakistan will pose one of the most important but difficult foreign policy challenges for the Obama administration, and that the U.S. government and its partners need a new roadmap. The current U.S. approach has failed to advance U.S. national security interests and the interests of Pakistanis. For decades, and especially since September 11th, the United States has pursued short-term stability in Pakistan by utilizing a flawed strategy in which we have provided almost exclusive support to the Pakistan's military establishment and its individual leaders. We've offered little support to the civilian institutions and programs that directly impact the lives of Pakistanis. And the U.S. has approached Pakistan in a vacuum, 
neglecting to create coherent regional strategies, and failing to leverage the resources and influence of other key countries such as China, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and many others. This report lays out a new approach to U.S. policy toward Pakistan. We basically see three fundamental challenges in Pakistan. The first is clearly the militant challenge, which we've all heard a lot about. M numerous militant groups have escalated deadly attacks within Pakistan and Afghanistan, and our intelligence agencies tell us that they are using safe havens in Pakistan f to facilitate and plan attacks around the world, including against us. And regional tensions exacerbate this, these militant groups and this insurgency. Pakistan's fears of encirclement by India translate into continued support by some elements within the Pakistani military establishment for these groups. But this is where I think the report diverges because we look beyond just the in insurgent threat, which is so important. We believe that there are, there are two other major sources of instability in Pakistan that we have to address. And the second one is the economic crisis. It's, it's been a, in the news a lot, but it's clear that, that Pakistan is going through a serious, serious economic crisis, and it, which is exacerbating its chronic underdevelopment. Inflation's at 25%, high global food prices have hit Pakistanis especially hard, and foreign investors have fled. Their foreign exchange reserves are below $7 billion, enough to pay for about two months of imports, and the government is in danger of defaulting on its foreign debt. We, we see in the news that the IMF just agreed uh, to, with, with the Pakistani government to a $7.6 billion loan package to avoid default. And on another, in another um, channel, Pakistani leaders are today in Abu Dhabi asking for billions of dollars from the, the Friends of Pakistan group, which is a group made up of numerous countries, including China, Saudi Arabia, the U.S., the U.K., and others, to try to get further assistance. The third and, f and final challenge that we talk about in this report is Pakistan's problems with very, very weak civilian governance, which feeds greater instability in Pakistan. Its government remains weak following years of military rule, under underinvestment in Pakistan's governmental institutions, and dysfunctional political leadership. And there's a huge disconnect between the needs of the Pakistani people and the ability and will of their leaders to respond to them. These challenges feed each other in a dangerous cycle, and their impact extends beyond Pakistan's borders, having a wide-ranging impact on regional and global security. And our set of recommendations address these three interlinked challenges. And I'm not going to go to, into all of the details of the recommendations. I want to basically give you the six kind of overarching recommendations for the report. But these, re these recommendations are based on two fundamental principles, which are basically that the, the U.S. must treat the U.S.-Pakistan relationship as a partnership with the Pakistani leadership and its people. It can't be something imposed. We have to work with the Pakistanis. And the second is that the U.S. has limited influence in Pakistan, and it's a problem compounded by uh, widespread anti-Americanism. We must pursue objectives in Pakistan with the assistance of other countries. In order to address these, these challenges, we provide a number of detailed recommendations, and I'm, I'm going to just talk about the six. 
overarching ones. The first is that the U.S. must implement policies that recommend the regional dimension of Pakistan's security challenges. You cannot address Pakistan with thinking, without thinking about India Afga and Afghanistan. They are inextricably linked. Long-standing Pakistan-India India tensions have affected Pakistan's, the Pakistan military establishment strategic calculus and how they're dealing with the militant groups. That strategic calculus has to be addressed in order to be able to tackle the insurgent problem. The, the second major recommendation is that um, we have to, the United States has to approach Pakistan with, through an integrated international support effort. Everything we touch in Pakistan often discredits it, and so therefore we have to work with, with other key countries such as China and Saudi Arabia and through, through uh, groups such as the Friends of Pakistan group. That will be the way that we are able to, to advance U.S. goals more effectively in Pakistan. The third overarching recommendation is that the relationship between Pakistan and Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan and the U.S. has to be broadened and deepened beyond just a narrow focus on military and intelligence cooperation. It's clear that Pakistan's problems will not be solved by military means alone and long-term long stability will require strengthening these other aspects, Pakistan's economy, its governance, and reducing regional tensions. The military approach is much, must be integrated into a wider political strategy for the region. And the U.S. should support the Pakistani military establishment in ways that encourage civilian oversight and democratic political reforms. So, therefore, we should expand U.S.-Pakistan partnerships on a broad set of issues, including economic development, energy, education, educational assistance, judicial support, and more. Uh, the fourth recommendation, and there are six here, so we're almost, we're almost finished with these. Um, the fourth is that we need to support democratic transition in Pakistan without picking favored candidates or political parties, and this is a mistake we've made in the past that we have um, for too long focused uh, exclusively on supporting individual leaders such as uh, President, former President Musharraf. With the upcoming local elections in Pakistan in 2009, we can work towards expanding efforts, efforts to support civil society organization, assist political parties, and encourage electoral reform. Fifth, we've got to do a better job at providing better oversight and transparency of U.S. funds to Pakistan. Our aid to Pakistan has clearly been characterized by a lack of accountability, transparency, and it's been short-sighted. We have to we have to demand more transparency over our funding and tie our assistance to specific agreed upon objectives such as good faith efforts by the Pakistani milita military to crack down on militant groups in Pakistan and not just in Al-Qaeda Al and to st stop cross-border attacks into Afghanistan. Finally, a lot of this will be very, very difficult to implement in terms of supporting the economic, uh, supporting Pakistan's economy and helping with their, their underdevelopment and supporting governance if we don't do, if we don't reform U.S. bureaucratic institutions and our interagency processes. We have done a poor job of employing civilian instruments of national security outside of the military, including in our St State Department and, and USAID. 
our agencies have to complement each other better in stabilizing Pakistan. Our civilian institutions clearly need more resources, and our foreign aid system needs to be over fundamentally overhauled. So we have lots and lots of recommendations in our report, which I urge you to read. Um, but that's, that's where the, the overall messages are of this report. We think there's an opportunity for a shift in the relationship because of the new Obama administration, because of an interested U.S. Congress, because of the democratically elected Pakistani government, the fact that they have a, a strong, a growing civil society and a, and a strengthening media. All of these factors can help with this shift. We hope this, will, this report will provide a foundation to repair what we believe is a broken relationship and create a partnership for pro progress. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Larry. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Caroline, and thanks uh, so much for taking the lead on this, uh, on this report. Uh, we have a, a great panel here to discuss uh, particularly the recommendations we make in the report and the opportunities pre presented uh, in terms of the, where the Congress is and the new administration. Uh, we have the first, uh, uh, Jonah Blank, who's the Chief Policy Advisor for South Asia, Central Asia, uh, on the majority staff of the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, Jonah is an anthropologist by training. He's also had experience in the media with U.S. News and World Report, been an academic. He's taught at Harvard, Georgetown, and Johns Hopkins, and he's the author of two books dealing with this uh, part of the world. Uh, next, we have uh, Steve Cole, currently is the president and CEO of the New America Foundation and a staff writer for the New Yorker ma uh, magazine. Uh, Steve spent 20 years with the Washington Post, ending up as the managing editor. He, too, is uh, an author of uh, six books, uh, uh, several of which have received prizes, for Pulitzer Prizes, and the author Ross Book Award from the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, particularly the two I've read are Ghost Wars and, and about, uh, you know, ben, uh, ben Laden. And last but not least, we have uh, Bob Grenier, who uh, <clears throat> spent 27 years uh, in the clandestine service in the, uh, in the Central Intelligence Agency, focusing on uh, 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 South Asia and that, and that part of the world, 15 years of which were overseas. He was the station chief in Islamabad and also the head of the CIA's counterterrorism uh, center. Right now, he's the managing director and chairman for global security consulting at Kroll, which he joined about two years ago following his retirement from the agency. So let me begin, because what we're going to do here is I'm going to raise a couple of questions for our panel to comment on aspects of the report. We'll go back and forth uh, for a little while, and then we'll open it up uh, to questions from the audience. Uh, let me begin by asking this question for Steve Cole. <clears throat> the Senate's report has discussed the importance of addressing security, <clears throat> uh, governance, and economic issues simultaneously, arguing that all of these factors uh, feed instability in Pakistan. President-elect Obama has stated the U.S. needs to focus more on <coughs> Afghanistan and Pakistan. <clears throat> Recognizing that Pakistan and Afghanistan are linked what do you believe the next administration will need to address urgently in Pakistan? What should be its most important priorities? And how should U.S. policy change uh, to more effectively address those problems? Well, that's a small question. Um, <laughs> I think the report uh, provides a pretty good uh, overview of the answer. But I, 
I guess I would start just by reiterating a couple of points that uh, both you and Caroline made in setting the context. Uh, this is, even by the lights of Pakistan, a period of considerable instability. And it's also a situation where the U.S. arrives with relatively um, limited levers for immediate effect. I do think that um, I want to make one point that perhaps would complement what uh, you and Caroline out outlined, uh, which is the central importance of communication by the next administration. I think it's as important for the next administration to communicate successfully to the people of Pakistan as well as to uh, varied institutions there as it is to adjust policy. And I, I think in this case, communication and policy are uh, essentially indistinguishable. I don't want to be um, alarmist about it, but I think there are sort of pre-revolutionary pre characteristics in the situation in, in Pakistan today, certainly in Western Pakistan, uh, maybe certainly we're past pre-revolutionary in the Fatah and in, in the Northwest Frontier Province, uh, things are really quite uh, serious. And in a situation like that, and you, and you have confronting this insurgency on the government side, uh, a divided government, in many cases weak institutions, I, I don't include the army in that, but uh, nonetheless uh, a weak overall macroeconomic situation that affects the army as well. And so in that contest uh, with the Taliban or the Taliban movement more broadly, uh, the population really is the center of gravity, as they say in counterinsurgency theory. And the way to, to think about what the U.S. can contribute to strengthening the population's resolve in the face of these challenges, which are being mounted in, a, in the name of Islam, the organizing principle of the state itself, in order to compete with that challenge, the United States has to help all of the um, government's constituents make their own case uh, and to strengthen the population against this movement. And I, I do think that rewriting policy and thinking about how to uh, direct American resources broadly uh, is important, but communicating as that uh, occurs in a convincing way, in a multilateral context, but persistently and um, visibly is going to be critical. And I think that uh, the next ambassador, or if uh, the current ambassador, who I think has uh, generally done a, a good job, uh, continues, is going to have to be someone who, who takes the lead in the field. But you're, you're going to have to start with the next president speaking about these issues right out of the box from, from the presidential level, uh, and speaking uh, not just to American constituents about the hunt for bin Laden, but to Pakistanis again and again about how important this partnership is, about how broadly based it is going to be, and how committed the United States is to its success. I think that's absolutely critical. Um, I would just make one other point, which is part of the same argument, which is I think a consequence of the emphasis on security partnership that Caroline uh, mentioned is that this, the covert aspects of U.S. relations with Pakistan or the, or the sensitive security-based aspects of that relationship have, have predominated, have, have overtaken the more normal, over-diplomatic context in which an alliance of this importance is normally uh, set in. And there is 
an urgent security situation, and the partnership between the United States and the Pakistan Army and security services is critical. But that partnership can only succeed if it is taking place in a confident, successful, overt alliance. So covert action only succeeds generally when it is an extension of a successful overt policy. And I think if you took that framework and, and measured the situation in Pakistan against it now, you would be hard-pressed to argue that that's what's going on. In fact, covert action is, is creating confusion, secret meetings on aircraft carriers, predator strikes that nobody is prepared to own up to. Uh, can, you know, there's, a, there's a pattern of avoidance and, and even confusion that arises from the way the partnership is emphasized now. And so I'm not suggesting that the security partnership isn't critical, but I think it needs to be reordered and repositioned and uh, become an extension of something that has a different character. Thanks. If I could ask uh, Bob to, uh, to address that larger question and also focus uh, uh, on the relationship between uh, the United States and the Pakistan military, particularly ISI, and maybe comment on what the Washington Post told us yesterday on the front page, that uh, they're getting along with a wink and a nod here in terms of um, our predator strikes. Well, um, with regard to the, the, the larger uh, issue, um, I think that we, I, I very much subscribe to the view that we need to approach this uh, problem in a, in a regional context, and uh, perhaps we can drill into this in a great deal more detail in the, the following discussion, but I think that very much has to include a settlement of, uh, of Kashmir, and I realize that that, with all of the, the near-term immediate issues that we have, particularly focusing on the, the tribal areas, that, that, that may sound to some ears a little bit like waking up the day after 9-11 and saying, well, we need to go and deal with Iraq. Um, but uh, some did. Uh, <laughs> you don't say. Um, uh, but uh, I've watched in the U.S. government for 27 years as no one has really wanted to grapple with Kashmir, uh, and yet uh, I do believe that if we are going to, to bring about the fundamental realignment of uh, Pakistan, of the Pakistani military that will be required, I think, to address the issues that have just been uh, articulated. And if we are to bring about a, an important change in Pakistani attitudes and policy toward Afghanistan, uh, a, a necessary, although insufficient, condition of that will be to address Kashmir in, uh, in a comprehensive way. And again, I, I've got lots of other ideas about how to go about doing that. Um, with regard to uh, our uh, partnership with uh, the Pakistani military and particularly with uh, the, the ISI. Um, that brings up a, another issue which I think we need to, uh, to focus on, and that is that while we, we do need to have a cooperative approach that involves many of our friends and allies in aiding the, the Pakistanis, uh, that uh, as we work out with them a rough division of labor, uh, the U.S., I believe, ought to be taking uh, the lead in addressing the issues in the federally administered <coughs> tribal areas. And given the difficulty in doing so, I suspect that we will not have a great deal of difficulty in convincing them uh, to allow us to take the lead there. Um, but uh, and, as we all know, that there's a real tension uh, between our, if you will, short-term tactical aims in trying to capture or kill terrorists uh, and uh, cross-border militants uh, in the federally administered tribal areas, uh, and that, that there is a fundamental tension between that and our longer-term uh, counterinsurgency pacification goals. 
uh, I think we very much need to be focusing on the end state. What is it that we need this area to look like? What would a pacified uh, Fatah look like? And, and that needs to be the, the organizing principle, I think, for all of our activities. There are times when we, we will be forced uh, to take two steps back in order to take one step forward. Um, I certainly don't think that we should abjure cross-border uh, strikes, but um, I, I do believe that uh, we have to remain focused on what does the end state need to be. Uh, and in that context, we need, I believe, to have a common agenda with the Pakistani government and very much to include uh, the, the military uh, on counterinsurgency in that area and, and that there, there needs to be, therefore, a, a focus on combining military strength, military efforts with economic development and political development in those areas. Um, and uh, to that end, I, I believe that, that, again, we need to have a a common agenda, not to suggest that there, there will not be continued tensions uh, and differences of uh, opinion and perspective between ourselves and our Pakistani friends, but we need to get a whole lot closer, certainly, than we are right now in forging a common agenda with them. And uh, to that end, I think we need to be uh, focused in the, in the very near term, immediately, uh, on aid to what the Pakistanis themselves are doing in Bajor. They're, they're involved in very active hostilities there. Uh, they've got uh, huge uh, humanitarian issues, but perhaps uh, 300,000 uh, displaced persons there. Uh, we need to, to help them to succeed militarily, but even more importantly, we need uh, to be there for them with the resources necessary uh, to follow in, not only with humanitarian assistance, but with, uh, with uh, economic development, uh, so that this can become a model for the counterinsurgency policy that must be pursued far more broadly in uh, elsewhere in, in the Fatah. And in that context, uh, with regard to uh, the ISI. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. Um, <laughs> I would not say that the ISI is not uh, a problematic organization. Yes, uh, it, it does have its own agendas. Uh, yes, there are individuals within the ISI uh, who are, shall we say, a little bit difficult to keep on the reservation. That said, I think we need to see this in perspective. Uh, I think that it, it is often convenient for all sides, very much to include uh, the Pakistanis, to sort of blame things on the ISI. Um, in point of fact, however, fundamentally speaking, if we have a problem with the ISI, it's because we have fundamental policy problems with Pakistan. Uh, if we don't like the relationships that the ISI is maintaining, if we don't like the, amb the ambiguity uh, with which uh, they are operating in Afghanistan, the, the, the reason for that, I do believe, is because of a fundamental ambiguity, at the very least, uh, in Pakistani policy with regard uh, to Afghanistan. All that said, uh, I think that, there, that we do need to encourage uh, a reform of the ISI. I'll just mention a couple of things uh, very, very quickly. Um, I, I do believe that the ISI, at least for the interim, um, as we take an evolutionary approach to this, does need uh, to remain fundamentally a, a military organization, uh, which relies on uh, officers seconded from the, the, the Pakistani military. The, the, the concern that I have, uh, if we were to encourage, and I'm not suggesting that, that they would be able to or, or be willing to, even if we were to encourage them uh, to turn the ISI into a civilian organization, is that the model for that would be the IB. 
the intelligence bureau, and, and uh, that has always been a, a political tool of Pakistani prime ministers. I don't think that that's the uh, that's the direction in which we, we want to go. That said, uh, I, I do believe that it would be far healthier for the ISI if they were reporting to a civilian leadership. Since we don't have a mature uh, national security infrastructure within Pakistan, I presume that would have to be in the in the short term the uh, the Minister of Interior. Uh, one other thing, I'm sorry, the, the Minister of, of Defense, uh, and perhaps in combination with, with the Minister of Interior. And then uh, finally, the, the one thing that I would mention in that regard is that uh, having, having spent so many years in uh, rapturous contact uh, with, um, uh, with um, congressional oversight uh, in the United States, uh, that is a pleasure which I would very much like uh, to uh, convey on my, uh, on my old Pakistani friends. Um, <laughs> But uh, seriously, I, I do believe that uh, the, the, the experience of having to go before uh, the, the Pakistani National Assembly and, and explaining themselves, explaining how what they are doing is carrying out a government policy uh, would be a, a very good thing indeed. Uh, <clears throat> Bob, some people, according to press reports, say that we're, this new government is moving in that direction. I mean, are we being too optimistic uh, or is, uh, you know, is there going to be uh, a, a way for this government to get there? Well, it, again, I think that, that uh, any progress is going to have to be uh, incremental. It's going to have to be uh, evolutionary. Uh, as you know, right at, at the beginning of the, the current administration in, in Pakistan, that there was, a, there was a, an announcement which came out which, which said that uh, the, the ISI was no longer going to be under military control. Um, and then suddenly, that all seems to have changed, although I don't recall that there having been an announcement to that effect. So um, it only lasted about eight hours. Yeah, until somebody about, told the ISI right. would have been announced, yeah. and they said no, uh, that won't be happening. Um, and, uh, and so again, I, I, I do believe that there's going to have to be a, a constituency built up for that uh, within Pakistani uh, civil society and within uh, the Pakistan military itself. I think there's going to need to be a, a path going forward, uh, but I, I do believe that there is. Uh, progress which can be made, and uh, again, I, I think that uh, a, a, an important first milestone on that would be uh, to create a situation where the ISI, uh, for all that it is a military organization, uh, would need to report uh, in the initial instance to civilian leadership. Okay. <clears throat> uh, Jonah, if you could uh, talk about this larger question that we uh, raise in the, in, in the report, and also if you could uh, shed some light on whether you think the Biden-Luger bill uh, is going to have much of uh, an impact. Ah, well, thanks, Larry, and uh, thanks also to Caroline and Brian and everybody at uh, CAP. Uh, it really uh, was tremendously helpful for me in helping put together uh, this landmark piece of legislation about Pakistan to have the, uh, the brain trust and the discussions that uh, we had during uh, the creation of this report. So thanks again for that. I should start out by saying that I am uh, no, nothing I say is uh, the uh, is uh, attributable or um, uh, the voice of uh, of the president-elect or the vice president-elect or anyone other than myself. Uh, means I also because of the several hats that I wear. Uh, I'm, I hope you'll forgive me if I try to be as boring as I possibly can. Uh, uh, so I'll speak a little more about what we have done in the past rather than what people may do in the future. 
And one of the things we have done in the past is pass uh, S-3263, the Pakistan bill, the Biden-Luger bill, or the Biden-Luger-Obama bill, since the first uh, co-sponsor was uh, Senator Obama. And uh, Senator Obama um, laid out his vision for Pakistan as Biden and Luger were introducing this bill in the Senate, almost uh, exactly to the minute at the same time. So uh, I think that this piece of legislation uh, has very strong support from uh, not only the uh, not only uh, the uh, uh, various members of the Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, it passed unanimously through the Foreign Relations Committee on a bipartisan basis, uh, but uh, it really is a blueprint for uh, I think uh, how to implement some of the ideas in the re- in the report. Uh, just going down some of the list of uh, this. Uh, Partnership with Pakistan, U.S. limited leverage, uh, emphasizing regional dimension, instability, uh, not just a matter of militancy, broadening and deepening uh, beyond the military intelligence field, straight down the list. These are the kind of things that we have tried to put into legislative form. So let me just run down quickly what the bill says uh, and uh, what perhaps it uh, uh, might be, how it might be implemented. Uh, First uh, is uh, is extending uh, non-military aid, tripling non-military aid to $1.5 billion a year. We authorize that amount for five years and have hortatory language for another five after that. Uh, we would authorize for 10 if that's the way, uh, or we might have decided to authorize for 10 if that's the way uh, congressional authorizations work. <clears throat> this is... Um, uh, a, a big change in U.S. policy, not merely because of the dollar figures, uh, the actual amount of money that goes to roads and schools and clinics, but for what that dollar figure says. Uh, this gets directly to the, uh, uh, to the center's recommendation that we broaden and deepen our relationship, because right now the, uh, the lion's share of money goes for military purposes. We can talk all we want about how we want to broaden and deepen, but uh, in Washington, nothing really speaks as loud as money, and uh, nothing really says money like uh, uh, the big B. Uh, now, I suppose that could be the big tree, but, uh, T, but we don't really have trillions to uh, toss around. Uh, we may not even have billions, uh, but uh, uh, that's another question. Uh, part of the problem in U.S. relations with Pakistan has been that uh, it's been tactical rather than strategic, as Steve pointed out. Um, we've, uh, we've got to get over this, uh, this justifiable suspicion on the part of many Pakistanis that we're only tactically driven, we're only looking for a short-term uh, fix, and as soon as we get uh, al-Qaeda wrapped up, then we'll leave the same way we did after the Afghan jihad. Uh, Part of the uh, rationale for this piece of legislation was to, to try to lock in a long-term commitment, at least as a matter of stated U.S. policy with dollars to back it up. Uh, this, uh, this money also would be a way of uh, strengthening democracy in Pakistan without, as the uh, report quite rightly points out, without picking and choosing, without saying we're supporting this leader. Uh, supporting the institution of democracy. 
um, as a democracy dividend, in fact. We already had part of, the, of this money already appropriated uh, as, a, a, as a democracy dividend. Uh, one could look at the entire package as a continuation of that idea. Um, why would this matter? Because it's very important for civilians to be able to go to the Pakistani people and say it's not just the generals who can deliver. We are the ones who can deliver the goods, not because of a special relationship with this president or that president or this uh, Congress or that Congress, but because of the institution. The institution of democracy is able to deliver as well as or better than the military. <clears throat> Second point in legislation is conditioning military aid on results, or at least upon uh, genuine efforts. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, genuine efforts. The, the legislation mandates that the Secretary of State certify to Congress uh, that uh, the Pakistani military and intelligence services are full partners. This is, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but essentially are full partners and make a genuine effort in the struggle against al-Qaeda, in the struggle against the Taliban, and are not interfering in the democratic process or the judicial process. This does not mean that military aid would be cut. Military aid could be raised, could be lowered, could remain the same. But in order for it to occur, then at least the Secretary of State would have to make this certification and would have to do so, and Bob can, um, can uh, say whether this, uh, how important this is or is not, would have to do so in, after uh, consulting with the DNI. So uh, we've written that into the law. Uh, specifically so that this, this certification would have to be based on actual intelligence rather than sort of just on gut feelings. Uh, the, the third point goes to accountability. Uh, we put in sense of Congress language about greater transparency and accountability, particularly of coalition support funds, which right now uh, are um, somewhat opaque. Uh, the fourth point is difficult, perhaps impossible to legislate, but we've included it as a, again, as hortatory language because I think it is fundamentally important. This gets to what the report uh, highlights right at the top, that we need to have, some, have a partnership, not something that is imposed upon Pakistan. Um, we have to address issues of interest to the Pakistanis. Uh, we can't have the relationship merely dictated by security concerns, intelligence concerns, and issues that are of interest to the U.S. primarily. Uh, so these are things that we already have uh, written into the, the piece of legislation that passed the Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, I think that uh, there's every reason to expect that in the new Congress, this same uh, bill, perhaps changed uh, slightly to account for changing circumstances, or perhaps exactly as is, would be reintroduced. Uh, the, uh, one of the lead co-sponsors, Senator Luger, will presumably be there. <clears throat> and uh, uh, Senators Obama and, uh, and Biden will, uh, will presumably not well. Senator uh, Obama has already given up his Senate seat. Senator Biden will presumably be doing so before the new Congress is, uh, uh, is uh, sworn in. Uh, but uh, we have uh, many other Foreign Relations Committee members. Uh, Senator Kerry has been very active in uh, this effort, and uh, he would be the next in seniority if, as expected, Senator Dodd uh, takes a banking committee instead of foreign relations. So I'm quite optimistic that this piece of legislation would be reintroduced and uh, would uh, have the support of uh, people on both sides of the aisle and uh, both uh, ends of the mall. <clears throat>
Thank you very much. Let me ask each of you very briefly if you could tell me what you think the future of this government. We've talked about U.S. policy. What, how, is this government going to make it? Uh, you know, what's a, the long-term uh, prospects for them? Well, I think there, uh, this, this particular al alignment in, in the national parliament is not likely to last for, for an indefinite time. I think uh, Nawaz Sharif and his party are deftly playing the crisis as, um, uh, as a political opportunity and that that will translate. Uh, it's, this, this situation is so dynamic, it's hard to foresee the circumstances that would surround the next election. But if you were to just extrapolate the present just as a uh, linear thought exercise, you would, uh, you would recognize that, that Sharif's coalition playing the sort of center-right um, opposition is in a pretty good spot, um, especially as the economy deteriorates. And there's really nothing anybody can do to address the worldwide uh, recession's impact on the Pakistani street. And uh, so I, I think what you could hope for would be a, a successful series of elections that consolidated peaceful transfers of power, coalition building, uh, perhaps created conditions for the eventual uh, formation of a, of a national government, uh, an all-party government of some sort, uh, that, that consolidated this decision that the current Army Chief of Staff has made to step back to the barracks and to permit a partnership with civilian uh, political parties as a, as a mechanism for constitution, sustainable constitutional arrangements. So I think it goes to the point that Caroline made at the beginning, which is that we shouldn't be worried terribly about personalities and parties and coalitions. We should be worried about the system and the population. Okay. Bob, are you optimistic? Mm -hmm. of I would say, in, in, in a word, yes. Uh, I, I do think that uh, the, the Pakistani political system is going to continue to muddle through. Um, I don't think that the current government in its current alignment is probably going to last all that long. Uh, that said, uh, I do think that we need to be uh, engaged with it uh, very closely and insistently uh, to help them uh, uh, put together a, a, a national program which uh, they can articulate and which we can support. Uh, but for the longer term, I do agree that it's probably a more center-right coalition dominated by uh, the Muslim League. Uh, that is, is more likely to, to bring Pakistan forward and, and, and in my view, would be uh, better positioned uh, to, within the, the Pakistani domestic political context to actually address uh, the, the fundamental conflict with religiously-based extremism. Well, I have a difficult enough time uh, predicting political developments <laughs> in this town, uh, so I won't, uh, won't attempt that for Islamabad. Uh, I, I'll just uh, point out, though, as a cause for optimism, one year ago, uh, one year ago, if we were sitting here, uh, we would have uh, been talking about uh, President Musharraf, uh, General Musharraf even at that time, uh, having just staged a coup d'etat against his own government, imposed a state of emergency, uh, de facto state of emergency, uh, essentially martial law, uh, thousands of people locked up with no due process, uh, every uh, shred of democracy threatened at a minimum, uh, widespread perception in Pakistan that this all was done with the backing of the United States government, and very little uh, way out of, the, of this impasse uh, discernible to the naked eye. Um, whatever 
the course of democracy may be in Pakistan, I think we've come, uh, we've got a good cause for optimism just seeing where we were today versus where we were a year ago. Okay. Uh, thank you. All right, I'm now ready to turn it over to the audience, and I'd ask uh, two things. One, uh, wait for the microphone, and when you get recognized, if you could tell us who you are, and as is our custom, we'll give first to the media. Anybody from the media have a question? Okay, yes, sir. Uh, David Lynch with USA Today. Uh, how much of the economic financial problem does the apparent IMF financing agreement solve or at least address? And could you all talk a little bit about the potential consequences over the next year if the domestic economy there continues to deteriorate? Caroline, why don't you start? My understanding is that um, the $7.6 billion that, is, that they have agreed to provide as long as the Pakistani government um, follows through on the measures it has promised to deliver. I mean, it's, this money is still not guaranteed, but that that will help them avoid the immediate default of their foreign debt. Um, but they, they've said that they need about, I think it's anywhere from 10 to $15 billion um, over the next couple of years. Um, just to, to be able to continue functioning and to continue importing. And they're going to need to find assistance from other people such a, or other countries. And that's why they're, um, they're talking about with the, the Friends of Pakistan group. I mean, this IMF money is not going to be sufficient to, to help them. Um, so other countries are going to have to step in. And we've seen China, they just agreed to provide another $500 million um, in addition to $500 million that they agreed to provide before, um, we'll see when that money comes through. But they're also asking other, they want assistance from the U.S., they want assistance from Saudi Arabia, especially in deferring um, some of the uh, payments on oil. Um, but, you know, if they, if they don't get the money they need, I think there is a, I think it could create a huge problem um, and, and, and potentially uh, deeply threaten the stability of the Pakistani civilian government. I mean, if they can't, if they're seen as being inept or incompetent and not able to, to function to import the, uh, the, the food, the, 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 what, what they need for their, po the fuel for their population, my, my sense is that the Pakistani mili military could step in again and, and overthrow them. Um, I don't know if anyone has follow-up on that. Anybody else want to add anything to that? Let me make a point, and I think you raise a key issue, but as we try to point out in the report, it's not just us. We can't do it by ourselves, and all of the countries in that region have an interest in Pakistan remaining with a legitimate civilian, civilian government. So that, I think the United States can take the lead in making sure that happens, but all of the other countries do not want to see it uh, implode either. Yes, sir. Okay. Right here. Okay. Hey, good morning. Uh, I'm Bob Dreyfus with uh, The Nation magazine. Um, your report is kind of skeptical about Pakistan's history of negotiations with the militant groups uh, up in Fatah and elsewhere. Um, today we saw Karzai saying that he wants to make an overt offer to the, uh, Mullah Omar and, and the Taliban. Uh, Nawaz Sharif has been working with Saudi Arabia and various former Taliban elements to uh, see if, explore if there's an idea of uh, negotiating. 
Um, and I wonder um, it, what you think about the likelihood, the possibility of uh, this sort of process, not only in Afghanistan, but also in uh, Pakistan, um, getting these militant groups to basically break with al-Qaeda, and then perhaps, um, as distasteful as it might be, um, bringing them into some sort of power sharing yeah. uh, arrangements. And, and by the way, the follow-up on that is, a lot of the countries around those countries, India, Russia, and Iran in particular, would not particularly like the Taliban to come mm -hmm. skulking back into any kind of position of power. But uh, is there a role for us in, in working with those three countries as well in terms of um, finding some sort of deal that could incorporate both the Taliban and their friends in, in those countries? Steve, you want to try that? Well, I think it's generally a rule that uh, it's not a good idea to negotiate from weakness, and unfortunately both the Pakistan and uh, Afghan governments are in a position now where that's what they're doing. I think part of the argument for a regional diplomatic approach, a contact group, a strengthened international context for supporting both the Pakistan and the Afghan government uh, across the full range of uh, uh, economic, political, and, and military assistance is to strengthen them for potential reconciliation. It's an enormously complicated subject. I just make two points. One is that I don't think there's any easily available grand bargain with the Taliban because there isn't any grand Taliban. There are there's a there's a central leadership shura that is if it's reconcilable today, it's not reconcilable on terms that would be acceptable to the international community or to the great majority of Pakistanis and Afghans. On the other hand, the Taliban is a big umbrella in which there are many uh, subgroups that in the context of uh, negotiating from strength and localized conditions could be broken off from military activity or brought into the government on both sides of the border in various circumstances. Uh, you know, to some extent, this is what the Pakistan army has always had in mind, and to the extent that it has been passively or actively supportive of the Taliban, it has not been, in my estimate, because they fantasized about ta Taliban rule in Kabul or you know, never mind in Pakistan, but because they wanted an instrument of pressure through which they could advance their own interests in political negotiations. So. Uh, for those on the other side of, of that campaign, you've got to be a little bit wary of what interests are really being served here. I think it's, um, again, a situation where first you have to strengthen the, the two states, and then you have to see negotiations as case-by-case case more localized than a grand bargain. Uh, the last example I'd mention is Hizbi Islami, uh, sort of essentially a, a two-state party uh, born during the 80s jihad, led by Gulbuddin Hekmadiyar in name to some respect. And, and there's another case where, you know, Karzai is way out ahead of where NATO would want to be, I think, in negotiating with, with Gulbuddin. Uh, but you could never say never. What you can say never to is the circumstances, at least in my view, in which these negotiations are being conducted now, in which there is not a coherent party on either side of the, of the, uh, the two state tables. Anybody want to add anything to that? Uh, okay, Michael. Hey, Michael Ware, CNN. What with reports of the connections of the ISI to the Indian embassy bombing, with reports of characters like Colonel Imams popping up back in Afghanistan, and myself having sat in Afghan Taliban madrasas back in 2002 in Quetta under ISI coverage, what precisely would how would you describe the precise nature of whatever active relationships the ISI might have 
with the Islamic militants. And as a follow-up, what do you make of the uh, appointment of the new director of the ISI, General Pasha? Bob, do you want to take a stab at that? Or? Yeah. Um, well, let me just start with the latter part uh, first. Uh, I think that um, the, the appointment of, of General Pasha has been um, uh, misapprehended by a, a lot of folks. Uh, first of all, uh, the, the change in the ISI came about, about as part of the, the, the regular rotation in, in, in senior military assignments in Pakistan. It, it all came uh, on schedule. Uh, that said, I, I do think that uh, the, the naming of General Pasha specifically, uh, his orientation, uh, and particularly in, um, in contrast with that of his predecessor, was one of the factors, I suspect, that was strongly considered by General Kayani when, uh, when he made that appointment. But uh, it wasn't as though he cashiered one uh, in order to, uh, to, uh, to bring in the other. Um, and um, uh, as a means of, uh, of making a whole new departure in policy. Uh, with regard to uh, the, the long-standing connections that uh, the, the Pakistani service has had with any number of, of different militants on both sides of the border and for, for a whole range of, of different purposes, um, uh, I, I think it is the, the job of intelligence services uh, to maintain connections with a great many players um, who, with whom it would be awkward at least for um, regular government officials or senior members of, of, in this case in Pakistan, of the military uh, to maintain such contacts. The, the, the question, it's not so much the, the matter of maintaining the contacts, it's the, the purposes to which those contacts are being put. And uh, I, I think in a context where you have someone like uh, Colonel Imam, uh, once again, perhaps uh, active uh, in Afghanistan, that is not a, a good sign uh, because uh, it, it would be difficult to imagine uh, Colonel Imam uh, actively pursuing a, a government policy of which we would approve. Uh, so again, I, I would look to the day when uh, rumors concerning Colonel Imam uh, uh, cease. Uh, but, but that said, uh, and I think there's a link to what the, the points that were being made previously with regard to uh, the, the need for um, negotiation or, or the, the need for the appearance of being open to negotiation. Uh, I think that the ISI can play a role in that, and, and I think that it is important for them uh, to maintain uh, channels of communication uh, for, uh, we hope, for, for constructive purposes uh, on behalf of the Pakistan government. Anybody else want to comment on that? Uh, okay, Dan? Hi, I'm Dan Segellin from the News Era. You have spoken about the need to solve the Kashmir issue, and I'm wondering what the Obama administration might be able to do in that front. I mean, the Indians have basically rejected any kind of U.S. effort in this. The Indians have rejected the U.S. playing a role in this effort. Bob, I think you were the one who brought that up, weren't you? Uh, yes, I hope I'm not going to regret that. Um, <laughs> um, <coughs> Yeah, I, I think that, that a, a U.S. role could take a number of different forms, and, uh, and th those would include uh, low-profile forms that would perhaps be uh, somewhat less, less objectionable uh, to the Indian government in the context of the, the, the long-standing uh, public policy position uh, that they have taken. Um, th that said, uh, the way I see the, the, the Kashmir dispute is that it's, it's impossible for me to conceive of a, a realizable um, solution 
which would not objectively favor India. Uh, in, in essence, and again, this, this is a shorthand. I certainly don't, don't mean it uh, in the way that, that I'm saying it literally, but the, the, the objective here uh, is to get the Pakistanis to accept the fact that Kashmir is gone uh, and help them to construct a, a, a political rationale that will enable them to, to, to get over it. Um, we, that cannot happen without the active support of the Indians. Uh, and that would uh, involve changes in policy within Kashmir, uh, as well as changes, I believe, in Indian policy in, in Afghanistan. But my view is that uh, for India to uh, achieve the, the broader global role to include an expanded role in international organizations to which it aspires, uh, and uh, if and for the United States to provide them with support to those ends, I think that needs to be conditional with what I would describe as constructive engagement uh, on Kashmir and, uh, and uh, in Afghanistan. Jonah, you're an expert on India. Uh, well, uh, I, I think that a um, couple, couple points made. Uh, one is, I think, uh, Kashmir is one of those issues where uh, the center's report on Pakistan actually uh, has a lot uh, has uh, a lot to offer more broadly on the on the idea that we really have got to understand our limitations. If we think we have little leverage over Pakistan's policy, we have even less leverage over India's policy. Even with the new nuclear deal. Uh, even with the new nuclear deal, uh, neither India nor Pakistan is going to give up its sovereign interests on issues that it feels are existential. Uh, I think that the, the long-standing U.S. policy on Kashmir has been mediate or facilitate but not mediate. And there's been a little bit of confusion in public uh, about whether that would carry through to a new administration. Uh, I feel very confident that, any, uh, that the, the past uh, formulation is the right one. Uh, we should facilitate if we are called upon, if the Pakistanis, the Indians, and the Kashmiris are interested in our facilitation, then uh, we should be prepared to, uh, to help facilitate. Uh, however, we shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking that this is an issue that we can mediate or impose a solution or come in in a very um, public and uh, high-profile way uh, without uh, causing uh, a, lot of, a lot more problems, perhaps, than we may help solve. Any other media? Okay. All right, Bob Hathaway, you were one of our groups, so. <laughs> right here. Thanks, Larry. Bob Hathaway, Wilson Center. Um, brief reference was made to current Pakistani military operations in Bajor. Um, clearly, they're expending a lot of resources there. They're taking a lot of casualties. Um, on the other hand, they're using tactics which don't really seem well-suited to an insurgency. A lot of firepower, including aerial bombing, generation of immense numbers of refugees in a way that seems almost counterproductive uh, if you're serious about dealing with this sort of adversary. So I wonder if you can, um, any of uh, the panelists can talk a bit more about the nature of these operations, what they say about Pakistani thinking about the nature of the threat, um, even whether uh, this is so counterproductive that uh, it may work against our interests. Steve, you want to try that? Uh... Well, the, it's, I think, 
uh, commonly observed, and for good reason, that the Pakistani military is not uh, trained, equipped, or led to uh, be effective in counterinsurgency operations, and their historical record when they have been uh, required to carry out such operations in Baluchistan and elsewhere is, is uh, not very encouraging. Um, you have, so the, there, it is a stated goal of U.S. policy now to try to improve uh, the equipment and doctrinal uh, and training approaches uh, that would aid both the, the formal Pakistan army, which is taking the lead in Bajor now, as well as the frontier corps. Uh, there, there seems still to be divided view within U.S. circles about which institution to emphasize. Uh, the, the problem with the army is that it's officered and manned primarily by non-Pashti speakers, and they are seen by the local populations in places like Bajur as, as outsiders, as foreigners, as occupiers even, and uh, that makes it difficult for them to follow up military operations with the humanitarian and political um, uh, initiatives that are typical of successful counterinsurgency. On the other hand, the Frontier Corps, which is drawn from local populations, is a relatively weak uh, institution uh, militarily, uh, though it's officered by very uh, competent officers from the mainline Pakistan Army. It's a spree de corps and its ability to fight in a context of brother against brother, or at least cousin against cousin, uh, has been a source of its own weakness over the years. And it might be a more natural institution for the build phase of clear hold build operations. But right now, there isn't really an integrated approach. Uh, as you see in Bajra, there's, there's an emphasis uh, encouraged by the, by the US side to some extent on, on actually getting after the, the adversary. And uh, that, that has produced the kinds of, and, and also one thing that, that's uh, telling if you read Jane Perlez's terrific piece in the Times uh, this week, is that you know we all, and I'm certainly guilty of this, uh, we tend to inflate ISI as a, this kind of beast of with many tentacles all over the place. And of course, one of the things about them is that there are many areas of the frontier where their their own intelligence operations are quite weak. Their contacts are weak. They don't really know what's going on. I think we found after 9/11, we thought that they were going to be able to tell us where everybody was, and it wasn't just that they were unwilling to do so. They also just didn't know and. Uh, so in Badra, they found out that the enemy was buried in all these tunnels and had all of these uh, incredible battlements that nobody knew were there. And uh, so they've had to fight much harder and destroy much more physical uh, uh, sort of uh, urban uh, dwellings than, the, the, than they thought they would. So it's a, I think you're right to diagnose the problem, but coming up with a comprehensive strategy of institution building and training and equipping and, and doctrine development is not something that can be done in six months. Bob, how long will it take? <laughs> oh, I, I think it's, it's going to take a, a long time. But I, I, I do believe that, um, you know, to, to paraphrase a, a certain uh, former Secretary of Defense, we, we, we've got to go to war with, uh, with the Pakistan Army that we've got um, and, uh, and hope that we can evolve in a, in a positive uh, direction over time. W one thing that um, I would add to that, though, and it's, it's hard uh, for me, uh, judging certainly from, from this distance and on the, the basis of uh, information that's available to me at least, uh, how much traction uh, th this method uh, has gained. But uh, the, the Pakistanis have apparently had some success in, uh, in uh, recruiting and, uh, and beginning to equip tribal Lashkars in, um, in, in Bajor. <coughs> uh, they're, 
there are some elements of the population uh, that, that don't like having the militants live among them. Uh, they may very well not particularly uh, like the orientation of these people, you know, particularly when they, uh, when they impose the, their wills with regard to, um, uh, to education and a whole host of other things. And they certainly don't like uh, what comes of their presence once the Pakistani military arrives. Uh, and uh, so there seems to be some desire on the part of some elements, traditional elements uh, within the population there in, in Bajor, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to take local security into their, into their own hands, uh, which is an element of, of classic counterinsurgency, and that is something that I think that we should uh, certainly encourage, we, we should uh, uh, try to, uh, uh, to uh, direct uh, in, uh, to the extent that we can, and hopefully it would become a model for other areas as well. Anybody else? Uh Okay, Harlan, you have a question? Okay. Uh, thank you. I'm Harlan Ullman. Uh, as you know, that uh, three other studies have already come out in Pakistan. The Atlantic Council is coming up with a fourth, and General Petraeus is producing his own, which will also focus on Pakistan. So far, the studies have been rather broad in their policy prescriptions, so I'd like to ask three sets of really more specific questions. Uh, first, regarding the economy, in order to get the IMF loan, the Pakistanis had had to in introduce really draconian measures to reduce their budget deficit from a little over 7 to 4 percent, which meant they've cut virtually all their subsidies for food and electricity and, and, and uh, energy. As a result, there are food riots in Karachi. There's less electricity in Karachi than in Baghdad. What, if anything, do you think can be done on a very short-term basis to ameliorate this situation because uh, it could become really quite desperate? Second, um, regarding the Pakistan Army, one of the great complaints, and the Pakistani Army will argue that its training for counterinsurgency is better than we think it is, is the absence of equipment such as night vision goggles, proper munitions, command and control, and all the other stuff, which we have been very, very reluctant to give them despite the promises of Admiral Mullen. What do you think can be done in the short term to provide the sort of stuff they need, which is not F-16s, not tanks, not artillery, but what you need in counterinsurgency? And finally, nobody mentioned really NATO and the European Union. As NATO looks to Afghanistan, obviously it cannot ignore Pakistan. So what suggestions or recommendations for the short term might NATO and the European Union bring to bear? Okay. <clears throat> Caroline, why don't you start with uh, NATO, because we talk about uh, in the report all the other countries that need to be involved. Um, we, we also believe that NATO's got to be part of it. Um, I think there's, there's no question that we, when we're thinking about, this is going to be kind of a broad answer, and I don't know if it's going to answer your question, but related to NATO and EU. I mean, the EU is part of the Friends of Pakistan group. They're, they're definitely involved. They're providing assistance. NATO, there has, there have been a number of discussions between NATO leaders and, and Pakistani leaders and U.S. Uh, I think that needs to continue. There's just got to, there's got to be increased coordination um, in terms of the military operations, in terms of uh, with the EU, the development factors, economic assistance. Um, I'm not sure beyond that what kind of detail you're looking for um, in terms of NATO and the EU, but that's, I would basically just say increased coordination. I mean, they've got to be players. They've got to be part of it. Um, in terms of the uh, in terms of the IMF measures, I mean, I think that would be a great. That's a place because the you, the Pakistani government is going to be put in such a tough situation with cutting all these subsidies. Right, exactly, already is. Um, 
that's a perfect place where the international community can assist, can step in. And I think that there has already been discussion about having a donors conference to try to figure out how the international community can step in. The Friends of Pakistan group is another a channel for doing that. And I think the, U, the U.S. can't, as Larry was talking about, the, the U.S. can't do it alone. I mean, we're already in our own financial difficulties in terms of uh, our own economic crisis. But I think that there are ways that we could step in with more food aid. Could we provide more assistance for electricity? Um, it seems that there are a number of sort of concrete measures that we could provide with the international community for filling some of these gaps um, as the Pakistanis make these very, very difficult steps. Um, so I would just leave it at that. Um, let me ask Joan if I can. Is there any congressional prohibition about sending the equipment there? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Uh, there have been a lot of uh, discussions about exactly what types of aid uh, can be sent, and I'm not aware that the that there is congressional pushback on things like uh, night vision goggles and other specifically counterterrorism uh, gear. In fact. Uh, there is a great appetite within Congress to gear more of our uh, funding to specifically counterinsurgency and counterterrorism equipment. Uh, we face this in FMF, foreign military f financing, uh, about whether uh, we should be uh, gearing this money towards counterterrorism supplies or towards uh, high-ticket weapon systems like F-16s and P-3 Orions. Uh, so I'm, I'm not aware of any kind of pushback in Congress, quite the opposite. Um, on the uh, larger issue as well, uh, uh, coalition support funds is an area where we give approximately a billion dollars a year, or have been, with very little uh, transparency. Uh, this, this pot of money, uh, I think, could be used much more effectively than it has been thus far. Uh, I say that with the asterisk that nobody really knows exactly what this money has been used for thus far. Uh, but uh, I think that even within military circles, within diplomatic circles, uh, there is a, a widespread feeling that we could do a much better job of gearing the coalition support funds genuinely towards counterterrorism and counterinsurgency purposes. And I think as we point out in the report, the 11 billion that we gave since 2001, there has not been the transparency to know where it's gone. Bob or Steve, you want to comment on this at all? Uh, just a, a couple of comments I mean, on the on the equipment side, I think lift and vision goggles have been two, helicopter lift and vision goggles have been two persistent complaints from the Pakistan side. I think there's a shortage of U.S. lift capability in Afghanistan as well. Um, and so that's, that may be as much a supply side problem as a, as a policy problem. There, is, there have been persistent concerns, I think understandable, on the U.S. side that certain kinds of technology and perhaps night vision equipment falls in this basket uh, might uh, pass through uh, to, the, to the adversary and change uh, the equation in a way that would be um, something the U.S. would want to try to prevent. Um, on, the, on the economic side, I do think that Biden-Luger is the right framework. It was constructed in a different global economic environment. And if uh, that legislation comes forward and is passed, I think making food security a priority uh, and, and thinking about uh, what the demands of the IMF uh, conditionality ought to be and how those demands uh, could be supported by uh, supplemental uh, direct aid from the United States, the EU, and Asia 
uh, should be part of the active leadership that the next administration brings to bear. You know, a year ago, we thought the big macroeconomic problem in Pakistan was going to be inflation. Uh, you know, now we're in a deflationary environment in which uh, the IMF's prescriptions for Pakistan threaten to also be, um, you know, countercyclical if they start laying people off in the government or, or cutting um, access to to food in the big cities. So there, there's got to be active, purposeful leadership that, that connects what is now fortunately developed as a framework for long-term policy with the short-term crisis. And, and I think it's going to have to uh, involve not just the IMF and not just the EU and NATO, but also uh, China and Japan and, and Asian nations as well. Bob, do you want to comment yeah. at all? Two things. One, with regard to the, the equipment issue, I, I think one of the, the persistent difficulties that, that we have here is that uh, the U.S. government has provided a, a fair amount of assistance to Pakistan uh, in helping to, uh, to train and equip um, uh, forces that are uh, prepared to deal with uh, counterinsurgency, well, not counterinsurgency, but counterterrorism operations, you know, the small, uh, focused. Um, uh, operations of the sort that uh, U.S. Special Forces uh, normally conduct. And the Pakistanis, uh, for a range of reasons, have been uh, very reluctant to employ those forces. And uh, so I, I think in that context, it, be, it, it increases what would uh, perhaps be a normal reluctance on the part of the U.S. military to share some of those, uh, of those capabilities. Uh, so that's one issue. With regard to the, uh, the economic issue, I, I note that so much of our conversation this morning is oriented toward aid. One of the things that persistently comes up when uh, I talk with my Pakistani friends and we talk about uh, economic issues is that, that the need for trade, not aid, uh, and the persistent problem that we've had with uh, U.S. textile quotas. And uh, perhaps uh, our colleague from the Congress could address that. Well, I would say this issue falls under the topic of, uh, the, uh, of issues that Pakistanis are interested in that we have not really addressed. And I, I feel uh, that we have to address them. Whether we will address them in the way that Pakistan wants is an, is an open question. But I think we can't simply uh, write all of these concerns off before even the, talking about it. Uh, to give you one example on textiles, uh, we in Congress, or some of us in Congress, actually tried to get uh, this textile relief back in the immediate aftermath of uh, 2001. And uh, at that time, Senator Helms was the uh, chairman of Foreign Relations Committee, and uh, he uh, made sure that did not go anywhere. So uh, easier said than done. Okay. Um, speaking of Congress, we've got Cong former Congressman Moody has a question. <coughs> Thank you, Tim Moody. Um, first of all, it's a wonderful report. Caroline and Larry have done a terrific job on an issue which could not be more urgent internationally. And Jonah, your leadership, too, has been fantastic. I have a two-part question. One is on the morale of the Pakistani uh, army. I talked to people who've been up there and, and studied this, and they said the generals live like kings, so they have drive around in Mercedes, they have huge plots of land, and the troops out in the, in the don't have their booths, they don't have their parkers. And the morale, the, 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 this problem has had a morale issue, side effect. It, that may be true, but that's what people tell me who know a lot more about it than I do, certainly. Uh, my second question, Joan, and more to you. <clears throat> uh, having just been up in the Northwest Frontier Province myself, NWFP, the AID wouldn't come with me because they said it was too dangerous to go. Of course, I had no problem. Um, they're trapped inside their, their, their offices. They can't get out. They're like confined to quarters. What is the delivery? I'm, Back to your roads, schools, and all the absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. A former Peace Corps person in Pakistan, I couldn't agree more. 
What about the delivery mechanism for getting these things done? AID is, in, is notoriously ill-equipped to, to do it, and, and there's no local delivery mechanism for roads, schools, and all that, that I can perceive. Give me some, some hope here, please, Jonah. Thank good, you. Good question, Jim. All right, let me, let me say this. I'd ask Jonah to answer that and make any final comments he'd like. We've got about five minutes and ask any of the, the panel to make any uh, wrap-up uh, comments. So, Jonah? Okay, great. Good, good questions, Jim. Uh, first off, on the Pakistani military, uh, I, I've certainly seen how the generals live, and they live quite well. Of, if, if you want to see the really uh, the hardest conditions of the Pakistani military, go up to Siachen Glacier, where uh, I've seen some of the, uh, the Jalans just uh, barely having boots uh, and um, under you know, about uh, 17,000 feet of altitude, and their posts even higher than where I went. Uh, can't be good for morale. On the issue of delivery in and getting out of the bunker, first, I, I feel quite the same every time. Uh, it's very frustrating to me that I can't go back to the neighborhood I used to live in, in Lahore. I, I lived in Lahore as an anthropologist, and back then, in those days, I had a long beard and uh, wore shalwar kameez and tried only to speak uh, in Urdu and uh, to lead a Sahih Muslim life and all of that. Uh, and I could walk around freely anywhere, and people knew I was American. Uh, now, if I go back to my old neighborhood, I have to have, uh, you know, an armed convoy. Uh, I don't think that's productive and a good way of uh, having, as, as Steve pointed, we've got to get out and communicate, and we can't communicate simply by television. We've got to actually be there on the ground. On the specific issue of delivery of aid, I think big USAID is, uh, has problems getting out and doing that. But OTI, the Office of Transition Initiatives, uh, I think is doing a much better job. They're much uh, more forward-leaning. They're working with Pakistani partners. And my feeling from several trips out to Peshawar in the past year or two is uh, that OTI is actually doing a much better job than big AID in terms of actually getting projects done. Any final comments on anything, or you want to leave it at that? Me? Yes. Um, it's your last chance. Yes. Uh, I, well, I just uh, thank the center again. I think this is uh, – Pakistan is going to be the, the one of the most important issues that the new administration faces. And uh, I – I think that uh, the, the report that, uh, that the center has laid out is really very much, I feel, in line with the existing legislation, and uh, the existing legislation, I feel, is a real blueprint for a bipartisan and, I hope, successful approach. Steve, any final comments on the report or anything, you questions? Well, I know this administration is going to have uh, an enormous draw on its capacity uh, at home and abroad, but I do think that one uh, challenge that this uh, subject raises is that incremental leadership is not going to be good enough. This is a time for a transformational approach in U.S. relations with Pakistan because the crisis in Pakistan is that grave. If, if I wish it weren't, <laughs> but I think it is. And, I, I do think that on subjects like trade and, and the structure of uh, the international engagement with Pakistan and even on uh, subjects like Kashmir, it is a time for big thinking because uh, otherwise uh, uh, this, this, uh, this problem may, may slip away from, from um, the international community. Bob, any final comments? I, I would just very much like to second uh, Steve's comments. Uh, think that this is a time that is going to require a tremendous amount of courage uh, to include domestic political courage. Uh, it's going to be very, very difficult for us to follow through on the, the, the very aggressive agenda, which I think <coughs> is pro uh, 
properly uh, been laid out in, uh, in this paper. Um, it's going to require a, a willingness to take some enormous risks. And uh, I, I do hope that uh, this administration will be equal to the task. Caroline, any final questions? Thanks so much for coming. And if you have um, any further questions, please feel free to contact me or um, Brian or Larry or Colin here at the center. And you can find copies of our report on our website. Okay. Let me uh, conclude by thanking all the audience for coming. I'm sorry I didn't get to everybody's questions. We could have gone on for another couple of uh, hours. i uh, tell you what a privilege it's been to not work with this panel and also with my colleagues on this, uh, on this report. And this is the third in the series we've done. We've talked about the situation in Iraq, strategic redeployment, talked about Afghanistan, the Forgotten Front, and this year Pakistan, and hopefully we could get them all together and realize that they're going to have to, you're going to have to take action in uh, each of those areas. Uh, a meeting like this could not occur without the, the support of a lot of uh, uh, people. Uh, I would particularly like to thank Andrew Rosen, Susie Emerling, and Mar Marlene Blasek for arranging this, providing the food, and, uh, and getting this uh, going. And leave you with this thought. If you ever worry about the future of this country, don't, because with young people like Caroline and Colin and Brian, we're going to be in good shape. So thank you very much for coming.